Well, hi, so good to be able to spend a little bit of time today with you wherever you are joining from. My name is Matt. Uh, I've been a part of the street for, for eight or nine years. I'm predominantly a part of the night community here on a Sunday. You may also have seen me uh, playing a little bit of electric guitar to a mixed level uh, if you're an online regular. Um, but I have a question for us that I want to start off with, and it's this. How do you respond when you feel secondary? When you feel overlooked or not wanted, or maybe you feel like you, you haven't been picked amongst a group. I remember when I was in my final year of school, the school asked all of us year 13s, who wants to be a mentor for a year nine class? And so we probably had maybe 16 year nine classes at my school. And so if there's three mentors per class, that means there were 48 roles going, right? For the whole of year 13, there were 48 people chosen to be a mentor. And I was one of the people that volunteered, and I, I realized later that there were 51 uh, people who volunteered for these roles, because I found out sometime afterwards that I was one of the three people who weren't selected for these roles. They didn't bother telling us individually, but they told the whole year 13, pretty much all of you have been selected, apart from three, um, so that's a shame. Uh, and, and, you know, how do we process something like that? What has been so tangibly not chosen or not selected due to our sense of value? How do we process um, what that means about where we fit in or how much we are worth? And in today's uh, message, I want to I look at someone you may well have heard of. We know him now as John the Baptist. I wonder if in 2,000 years you'll be so associated with what you did in life that it will be incorporated into your name. Evidently, I won't be known as Matt, the Year 9 class mentor. But here's what we know about John the Baptist. He's someone who spent his life in devotion to God, spreading the good news about the coming Christ and baptizing people. And he was widely known for this. It says in the Gospels that, that people went out to him from Jerusalem and all of Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. You know, he had obviously developed a reputation and was attracting and ministering to a large number of people. It was clear that baptizing people was a large part of what John was about. But then someone else steps into the story that we see and read about in the Gospels, and that person was Jesus. When Jesus started his ministry on earth, he started baptizing people. And John the Baptist's followers came to John and said this to him. They said, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. How does John the Baptist respond to everyone wanting to be baptized by this newcomer? Well, he responds like this. It's recorded for us in John chapter 3, verses 27 to 30. To this, John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater 
I must become less. How is it that that John the Baptist responds to being publicly set aside, in a sense, to simply becoming John for a while? Well, he responds with two key characteristics that I see in this response. One is humility and another contentment. And I notice that he makes an interesting statement about both his identity and his purpose. He says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him, a statement about his identity and his purpose. You know, John the Baptist knew all along who he was and who he was not. And he sums up this this response to this question with this, this statement. He says, he must become greater. Jesus must become greater. I must become less. You know, this is an incredible confession of worship that requires a secure sense of self and a trusting and faithful relationship with God. You know, the imagery of of kingdom is critical to understanding Jesus' message. The first recorded words of Jesus in Mark, which is the first gospel that was written, was this. Jesus said, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Or what's the first words of the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray? He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here on on the world, on the earth, we have a very uh, different message of kingdom. We have a much more individualistic message that pervades a lot of our thinking. And the message is that, that we are builders each of our own kingdoms. We are all kings and queens. And this, is, this appeals to us because it puts us front and center. It elevates us to be the main character in each of our own stories. Yet it puts pressure on us to be able to sustain our own kingdom. It asks, what sort of life can you create for yourself? What can you achieve that proves your worth? But we know that Jesus' message differs greatly from that of the world. His message is not that we will each be kings and queens. It's not that he will help us each be kings and queens. Rather, he invites us now to take up residence in his kingdom. It's described like this in John chapter 1. It says, Yet to all who did receive him, yet to all who did receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. This idea of being born of God, this idea of birthright, is such a key measure of identity in the Jewish culture that this was initially received in. To be described as a child of a king gives you immense standing and position. And so this imagery as being a child of God is is huge in terms of understanding our own identity, our belonging and our purpose as followers of Jesus. Ultimately, it means that our identity is received rather than achieved. 
And the invitation to become residents of heaven removes the need for us to be kings of our own kingdom. It eliminates any requirements to sustain these domains of our own. The identity and value we're given by God greatly exceeds that which we could possibly create for ourselves. You know, I think John the Baptist had this ability to absorb these things that would have been big blows to his own kingdom because he had an understanding that whatever he could build or create for himself was always going to be lesser than what God had freely given him. And so we have this incredible opportunity. We have this amazing invitation. And yet there's a cost to taking up the offer. The cost is that we give up our role as kings or queens of our own kingdom. We are no longer solely the main character. We give up a sense of our own control. Despite having more, we have to learn to manage the fact that others will perceive us to have less or even to be lesser. James, the the brother of Jesus, wrote this. Uh, He said, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? You know, God gives us freely this identity and belonging in his kingdom. And yet many times we can be inclined to turn that down in pursuit of our own kingdom. We turn down what God is freely offering in pursuit of what we can achieve for ourselves. You know, the human's heart's desire to be God, to be king, is strong. And I believe the enemy still tries to use that to his advantage today. You know, ultimately, this was the underlying temptation that caught out Adam and Eve. And it was Satan's most direct strategy and attempt to undermine Jesus' mission here on earth. The sense that we all sometimes have that we want to be king, we want to be central. And yet, if you step back when we think about it, this temptation is quickly exposed as, as a lie or as deceitful. Is our desire to be kings of our own kingdoms really rational at all? What sort of kingdom are you going to build for yourself in which you create a better situation than the situation that God's freely offering you? You're going to create a better kingdom than God. It's somewhat unlikely. You know, John the Baptist uses this really um, everyday illustration of how he sees his role in the kingdom of God. He's, he, sees, he describes himself at a wedding, and he is not the groom, but he describes himself as a friend who attends the groom. And I imagine this being the best man. And you know, when you're the best man or the maid of honor, you're, you're not the main event on the day, and you have an understanding of that but you have incredible access to experience and be a part of what is happening. You've been chosen and given tangible worth and value, but you're still rightly secondary to the people on the day. John describes himself like this. He says, The bride belongs to the bridegroom, but the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. It's interesting that that John is not the only one who draws parallels between taking up our role in the kingdom as it's designed and completeness of joy and fullness of joy. Jesus himself says later on in the book of John, as part of a wider dialogue, 
He says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Our role in the kingdom of God is much like the best man at a wedding. We're not the main event, but we are chosen and given great worth and invited to be part of something incredible. And so John the Baptist's response in this passage is characterized by, by genuine contentment and humility. You know, so on some days we maybe feel humble, we feel content. On some other days, maybe it's just me, but we feel like we're good at practicing or pretending to be humble or content. And then on some other days we don't even bother pretending. We just know that we're not feeling 100% about things. And so actually developing a, a mindset, actually developing a genuine posture of these things, I think is incredibly hard. But I want to suggest three things that we can try to do to cultivate humility and contentment. And the first one is this. Remind yourself who you are, but also who you are not. You know, if you read all of the, the Gospels, particularly the first few chapters of most of the Gospels, John the Baptist was totally consistent during his life that everything he did pointed forwards towards Jesus' coming. Whenever he was asked who he was, he maintained that he was not the Messiah, but that he was sent to prepare the way for Jesus' arrival and ministry. Many times in our lives, we need to remind ourselves that we are chosen and loved and valued, but we're not God and we're not King. And I think one of the best ways to practice this is in worship. Worship is, is, a, is a response to God that's not demeaning of ourselves, but it's recognizing God as being in his rightful place, recognizing God as Lord and King. You know, worship is a practice of humility and that we shift the focus off ourselves and onto God and onto the one who is most deserving. And so to cultivate contentment and humility, we need to remind ourselves who we are and who we are not. The second one is this, starve your royal instincts. Bit of a weird one, but, but go with me. Um, starve your royal instincts. Maybe you've tried to grow plants or herbs or flowers, uh, either inside your house or in the garden. I wonder if you had a similar experience to me where you're excited about it for two weeks, and then other things come into play, and you stop feeding that plant. You stop giving it the water and the attention that it needs. And what happens? It dies. You know, if, if, if you stay with that plant, if you keep feeding it, if it, it's a, in a spot with sun, if it has everything it needs, it will grow. But if it doesn't have what it needs to survive, if it's not fed, it will die. What we feed grows, and what we starve dies. And I think it's a really similar thing for our pride or our underlying desire to be kings. As an example, maybe you see your wealth or your finances as being a key expression of your identity or your value. Your heart is drawn towards these things. Whatever it is that you treasure, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not only that our heart is drawn towards the treasure, but it becomes a self-reinforcing cycle that, that whatever we treasure shapes our hearts too. What can you do to starve the misdirected pulls of your heart? 
What can you do to ensure that the impulses which draw you away from God aren't fed? Again, to go to the financial example, generosity and giving direct our heart away from hoarding financial treasure. Not only does it serve others and is a practical way of loving those around us, it forces us to practice being less drawn to and less dependent on having more money than what we actually need. If you don't feed your desires to be king or queen, those desires will gradually fade. Starve your royal instincts. And the third and final uh, point for now, pray and celebrate others. We are castle neighbours, not kingdom competitors. You know, I think whenever we feel that our identity is tied to our performance or what we can achieve, we become naturally inclined to compare ourselves and to benchmark against those around us. We can be sucked into the temptation to push others down or to make others lesser, to make ourselves seem relatively better. However, having been given this identity as children of God, as citizens of heaven, means that we have no more requirement to prove our worth, to demonstrate our value. You know, this remains unthreatened by what others can achieve or how they might stack up against ourselves. You know, when we follow Jesus, we are not part of separate kingdoms competing against each other for the little land and resources that are available. But rather, we are neighbours within the same kingdom. We have rooms down the same corridor. We have aligned interests and abundant provision of all that we need. And sometimes we, we can forget this. Our sinful nature can, can hide this from us, can make us forget but the act of praying for others, the act of celebrating others' achievements, celebrating their wins, helps us practice humility and contentment. How can we cultivate these things, contentment and humility? Number one, remind yourself who you are and who you are not. Number two, starve your royal instincts. And three, Pray for and celebrate others. We are castle neighbours, not kingdom competitors. And so at the start, I asked the question, how do we respond to setbacks, to being overlooked, or to being not chosen? Safe in the security that our position is safe in the kingdom of heaven, we can say, he must become greater. I must become less. How would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity that you give us to be, to be a part of your kingdom, Lord. Thank you that you describe us as, as children of yourself, Lord, that we have access to you as a father. God, I pray that as we, we move through our lives, that, that you would enable us to be uh, content with what we have, to be, to be humble, to understand how we fit into your story. But Lord, would you empower us to, to be sharing your message as well, Lord. We thank you for, for the free gift of salvation that you give to us. Yeah, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.